Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. This is episode 13 of season two of the RTM podcast, and thank you for joining us. I must confess that the precise moment when the Lord makes the sinner a saint is shrouded with mystery. I often feel much like the doctor or scientist who knows a great deal about the human body, but when he or she is asked about that force of energy called life, what it is, and from where it comes from, they cannot respond except to say, it's a mystery. The life of God in the soul of man is just as inscrutable. It, too, is a mystery. The whole realm of the Spirit goes undetected to the human eye and is full of ambiguity. I cannot, nor can any doctor of theology, explain to you how the Lord brings life to the soul, how He quickens a spirit dead in trespasses and sins. The work of Regeneration is known only to the Spirit of God who alone knows the mind of God. I've been with many when they believed unto salvation, and I have to confess that I'm hard-pressed to find two exactly alike. Every experience is different. For some, it was immediately evident that they had been transformed, while for others it took time to see the evidence. One may have barely felt any conviction of sin and easily believed, and another may have wrestled with God for years before resting in the Savior. Surely, some mothers can testify that one child was more challenging to deliver than another. One took long and many hours, while another came with little struggle and little time. So it is with being born in the kingdom of Christ. Last week, my task was to present the ingredients of faith, what faith is made up of, and show God's trustworthiness. My argument was and is that it should be easy to put your confidence in God. He's the only person who's always told the truth, never broken his word, so surely we should be able to trust in him. We examine the components of faith, the knowledge of the truth, the acceptance of the truth, commitment to the truth— and a focus on the truth. Before you can have faith in something or someone, you must first have knowledge of it or them. It's common sense to understand that you just can't believe in something without knowledge of it. Once you acquire the knowledge of God, you then must accept that knowledge as the truth. In other words, you believe what you have learned is accurate and you agree with it. But If you don't have that third component of faith, which is commitment, all your belief is nothing more than just mental agreements with facts. Trusting in God is you committing yourself to God. It's entrusting yourself to His plans, believing them to be the best for you. It's like giving yourself over to a surgeon to do an extremely dangerous operation. And you submit your life to the surgeon, even with doubts and fears. You still willingly put yourself on his table and give yourself to his scalpel. That is the concept behind the Bible's words for faith and believe, without the risk, of course. Faith is a submission to Christ Jesus of not just your sins, but also your life here on earth and in the ages immortal. Genuine faith always leads to action. Some facts don't require action because there's nothing for you to do. 
there's no possible way to commit yourself to them. For example, I cannot commit myself to George Washington, although I believe he existed. But Christ is not just a historical figure. He is the I am that I am. He said of himself, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And since he is alive, you can either entrust yourself to him or not. Now, if you accept the fact that God cannot tell a lie, then it seems to me it would be easy to take the next step and commit yourself to him. For example, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Surely, if you accept that statement as true, why would you not call upon this one who is called truth? Then how is it that souls in danger do not take Jesus at his word? How can people say they believe God in the Bible and not trust him? I would like to propose some answers to that question by giving you the evidences of genuine faith. We may not be able to discern the very moment of new life in the sinner, but we can surely be wise concerning faith's evidence. And this is not just true at the moment of conversion, but the exercise of faith throughout the Christian life. And I would say there are at least three evidences of God-approving faith. The first is humility. In Romans chapter 10, verse 3, Paul contrasts the faith of religious Jews who were not Christians with the faith of those who are genuinely converted. Paul shows us that the unconverted Jew's faith is in himself and not in God. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now, early in the book of Romans, the apostle establishes a theme. He says, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Now, Paul's quoting an Old Testament verse. He's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk said, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. You see, the prophet contrasts pride with faith. It's a proud man whose heart is not right. But what is it about the proud man's heart that isn't right? Well, it's that he will not trust in God. He cannot. Instead, he lives by putting his faith in himself. This is the message of Habakkuk and Paul. A proud man will not trust in God. And that's the main obstacle to faith in God. It always is pride. Since salvation is not a joint effort between you and the Lord, you cannot trust in yourself in the least to do anything that would make God confer upon you forgiveness and reconciliation. You cannot even trust in your faith if you're confident that you're saved because you trusted. Well, then your faith is misplaced. It must be in Jesus and in Him completely, for it is Jesus who completely saves. A proud man can only believe in Christ by humbling himself. He must first lose confidence in himself before he can exercise faith in the Lord. Therefore, humility is evidence that one has confidence in Christ Jesus. That's why the Lord said if any person was to be his disciple, they first had to deny themselves. You cannot trust in God and you. So to deny yourself is to deny yourself the right to trust in you. 
And that, my friend, is humility. Humility is to see yourself accurately, is to see yourself as a helpless and hopeless sinner, not having strength or goodness to be acceptable to God. A proud person will not feel they are sinful, and that's why those whom we would call good sinners, or maybe even religious sinners, they're church members, they've professed to believe in Christ, but they're still lost. It's why these kinds of people have great difficulty getting into the kingdom. They just simply don't see themselves as sinners. Their sin is not the socially unacceptable sin of drunkenness or perversions or taking things that do not belong to them. Their great sin is just simply too much confidence in themselves and too little, actually none, in Christ. They trust themselves more than they trust Jesus. But true Christians have been humbled. They've been made to know that their goodness is as filthy rags, and they, from the first moment of realizing their sin, will never see a time when they do not know their sin. They will always feel it. They'll always know that it lurks within them still. As the years go by, they don't find less sin in them, but more. As they increasingly know their Lord Jesus, they will increasingly know their undeservedness and unworthiness. The justified are people of humility. They have nothing within of which to be proud. They are recipients of amazing grace. Each one feels within his breast enough evil to fuel God's infinite flames of justice. And at times, it may be for some Christians such a feeling of being overwhelmed by their sin that they can scarce believe themselves to be saved. Oh, how often I have felt this myself. I wonder how it is that I could be a son of the Most High and be so unlike the Heavenly Father. I can only keep myself from going under and drowning in the depths of despair by looking away from the sea of my sin and to the lifeline of God's grace. I remember that it is only because of Jesus' goodness and extraordinary sacrifice that I am a son of God. And as the old hymn proclaims, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So when a person says to me they don't feel that they are that bad or think they're reasonably good persons, then I know they've never been to Calvary. They've yet to be saved. Faith that trusts in God is humbled. It rejects self-reliance. Faith that trusts in God doesn't even trust in itself. Christ is the object of true faith. It looks away from itself and loves to look upon Jesus, who is true and faithful and the amen of God. The second evidence of faith is obedience. I could have easily called it a component of faith as I can an evidence, but since faith must precede, I choose to call it an evidence. But I wouldn't quarrel with any if he would say obedience was the essence of faith. There are some verses of Scripture from which you can make such a case. In the last couple of episodes, we have been quoting a great deal from Romans chapter 10, and I want to continue because in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, Paul cites that disobedience was proof of a lack of faith. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. 
For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. In verse 18, he shows that Israel had heard the message, but they did not respond in faith. The writer to the Hebrews says of that generation of Israel that was with Moses in the wilderness, quote, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. And as a result, they didn't obey. If someone is in authority over you, you will follow their instructions, an employer, for example. You may not trust their integrity, but you will obey because they have authority over you. Well, my friend, surely we should trust the Lord because of His integrity and His authority over us. We should obey. Why? We even will obey those who have no authority to make us do as they say, but because we trust in them personally. We'll do whatever they may suggest. Have you never gone to a friend and asked for their advice, and because you so trusted them, you followed their counsel? Why then do you not do as the Lord has instructed you? Certainly, if you can follow the words of a fallible friend, you can follow the words of the infallible one. Why is it that you cannot obey him? It's because you don't trust him. Not trusting in God cannot be swept aside as a small thing. It's the basis of all disobedience. It's the taproot of all evil. You have grown up in church, you've been given such a religious education of God's person, and yet you just will not trust in Him. And that, my friend, will only prove for you that you're more damnable than the prostitute who knew little to nothing of God. She never called the Lord a liar and an untrustworthy soul as you have. She's not rejected His trustworthiness, for she never heard of it nor learned about it as you have done. Oh, I'm not saying she's not guilty of sin. She is. But your sin is more reprehensible because you've come to know and say and confess that you believe that God is trustworthy when you don't. Do you protest at my saying you've been calling God a liar and an untrustworthy and you argue that you do trust him? Well, then may I ask you, do you obey him? Have you repented of your sins? He's commanded you to do this. Have you done so? Have you put all of your faith in Christ Jesus, abandoning all hope of being a Christian except trusting in him to save you completely? If not, then you're guilty as charged. You're refusing to trust him. You continue to add to your sins rather than trust him to eliminate them. And each day you don't obey the gospel is the day you live in sin. Now, how can this bode well for you? The apostle John says to you, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar— and the truth is not in him. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. True faith obeys. Well, I must proceed to my last evidence of faith. Love is as much an evidence of faith as is humility or obedience, yet it's hardly seen as such. Love is seen as something distinct from faith, but it isn't. What is love? It's your delight in seeing others benefit. Another way to say it is, love is the commitment of oneself to the good of others. Thus, to love the Lord God with all heart, soul, and strength is giving yourself to God's glory and good. 
And to love your neighbor as yourself is to live to your neighbor's interest as you live for your good. Let me demonstrate how love is a sign of faith. Let's take a very popular text of Scripture once again from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Paul writes, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, what does it mean to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus? For our generation, all that means is to make a public profession in church that you've put your faith in Christ. But that's not what the apostle meant. In the days of the apostle Paul, public confession ran the risk of persecution. For instance, They didn't have church buildings with baptismal tanks. When a man believed in Christ, he was taken to a body of water and publicly baptized. It wasn't something done within the safe confines of a church. And should no one outside the church see the baptism, well, that probably didn't matter. Sooner or later, family members and friends would discover that the new Christian was different, spending a great deal of time with other known Christians. But not only that. Because he was a Christian, he would have found it challenging to keep his testimony to himself. His love for Christ would have compelled him to say something to somebody. Sir, confession was a much more serious word to the first century Christian than it is to us. Confession was and is to be a matter of the heart. It's the soul's expression of its joy in God, its delight in Christ, and its passion for Him. Confession's not a mouth thing as much as it is a heart thing. That's why Paul explains further in verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The mouth simply is the point of eruption for the heart. Today we've made confession of Christ a ritual by which people join the church or an exercise we make them go through in order to, quote, become a Christian, unquote. Today, confession can be made without the heart. But the Bible shows us that confession of Christ is the result of the heart falling in faith with God, or in other words, falling in love with God. The Apostle Paul saw that true faith must work in relationship to love. He saw a connection between the two. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, Paul declares, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Faith in God must value God and not only trust Jesus, but it also treasures Him. Faith delights in seeing God glorified and blessed above all others, even at a high personal cost. And so the question is, do you from your heart love or treasure the Lord? Now, I would advise you not to answer too quickly. I didn't ask you if you had feelings for Christ, and I did that purposefully because we can often have feelings for someone and not treasure them. But on the other hand, you cannot treasure someone and not have feelings for them. So, how can you know if you treasure Christ? And I answer that with the question, how do you know if you treasure anyone? To love or treasure Christ is no different than loving or treasuring anyone with one exception. You treasure him more than anyone, including yourself. Why does a husband buy a gift for his wife? If any man answers because it's Christmas or birthday or anniversary time, well, I think that guy is in trouble. 
So let me refine my question and suppose that it's neither holiday nor birthday. Why then would a husband buy his wife a gift? Two motivations come to mind that could prompt a husband to do this. The first is for purely selfish reasons. The first is for purely selfish reasons. Perhaps he's done something stupid, and as a result, the wife has been difficult. So in an attempt to make it easier at home for himself, he tries to appease, assuage her anger with a surprise gift. Or maybe he buys her a present because he wants something from her and is trying to soften her resolve to give him whatever he seeks. But the point is, he gives to get. The other motivation is that he gives her a gift because he truly enjoys her delight in the surprise. He enjoys making her feel special. This is love. But you ask me, what's the difference? Both motivations are for self, one to make his wife forgive or give him something, and the other is to get pleasure from seeing his wife happy. Both seem to be the same motivation, but they are really not. It's true in both motivations the husband can be benefited, but in the first motivation he really has no interest in his wife's joy. It's purely his own joy he's interested in. However, in the last, the husband's joy is a derivative of his wife's joy. He treasures her, and when she's happy, he's happy. His delight is in seeing her pleased and blessed. Love is being delighted in seeing the good of others achieved. Therefore, I ask you, do you really love and treasure Christ? The answer will be seen in your heart's motivation. Do you have a joy in pleasing the Lord because in the end it benefits you? Or do you have joy in pleasing the Lord because you truly delight in seeing God exalted and blessed? Many say they love the Lord because they have some kind of emotions or feelings for Him, but their emotions go no further than their own interest and not for God's sake or glory. If you truly love the Lord, you'll be gaining joy and pleasure, but your happiness is in the Lord's pleasure. Faith works in the Christian to not only trust in Christ, but to value Christ. It believes he's far better than anything else. Faith seeks the exaltation of Christ. That is all that Jesus meant when he said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Don't seek your happiness if you want to be happy, but give yourself to loving God and His joy, and you will be happy. Now, you may say to me, I've heard you, but I'm still confused. How do I do this? How do I put my faith in Christ? Is putting my trust in Christ a decision? Yes, it's certainly a decision, a choice, a commitment. It's all of those things, but it's not just with your mind, but with your will. Your heart inclines, and therefore you decide to follow Jesus. You place yourself and everything about you into his keeping. You humble yourself and deny yourself what you think is best. And you, with no trust in yourself, but with desperate dependency, cast, cast yourself upon him. It is the resolution of mind and heart that you submit yourself to him. You've heard his promise that he alone can save and that he would not turn anyone away that came to him. And because of that, you throw yourself at him. And if you fall into hell, it'll be because he failed to catch your falling soul. That is faith's resolve. But I assure you, the Lord Jesus will not fail to catch you. 
You will fall into his loving arms, and there you will reside in peace. Humble yourself. Renounce any demands upon him. Do not demand to feel a certain way. Just give yourself to him and trust that he will do right by you. Obey him and you'll be saved if you genuinely turn from your sins and relinquish the control of your life into his care and pursue his good and glory. Then you have trusted. And if you have trusted, you have been saved. Are you looking to no other to save from sin but Jesus? Well, then, my dear friend, you are saved. Do you trust him to live his life through you? Well, you're a child of God. Is your greatest joy his joy? Then you know God. And more importantly, he knows you. If you see smoke, you know there is fire. If the tree's bending and swaying, you know there is wind. If these evidences of faith are in you, then faith must be in you. But in saying that, I'm not telling you to trust the evidences. I only bid you look to Jesus. Rest your soul's eyes and confidence upon him. You cannot die and go to hell if you look to Christ and him alone. Now, faith is not just for the moment of conversion. What I've just described, these three evidences of humility, obedience, and love, is how faith operates in the Christian life from beginning to the end. Are these evidences in you? Well, then, therefore, you are a believer. According to the authority of the Word of God, these are the biblical evidences of faith. Before we leave you today, we want to welcome our new listeners. The number of weekly listeners is increasing, and we're grateful for you, and thank you for making RTM one of the podcasts you listen to regularly. So, to celebrate, I want to make available to you my book, which was published last year, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation. If you'd like a copy, we're going to offer the book to you for a reduced price while discussing the subject of faith on the podcast. The regular price is $12.99, but while we're exploring faith for the next few weeks, the price will be $9.99. To secure your copy, all you need to do is go to our website at www.realtruthmatters.com. That's realtruthmatters.com. We don't advertise. We do not market through any other means but the website. So this is the only place you can get a copy. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in. And may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.